Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Uh, he is the book of the year for last year, Hubris. I can't say enough about the effort of Megden Desai of the London School of Economics. This is hugely readable about how we got where we are within our economic history. Lord Desai joins us this morning. And I know Guy Johnson wants to get to you on the British cabinet and domestic politics. Lord Desai, I've been dying to ask you off of Jacob Viner's 1946 essay on mercantilism. Are we in a new mercantile age? Is there a shift going like the social astronomy you've written about for decades? You know, it's a very interesting movement against customs unions like the EU, as well as against sort of uh, joint uh, treaties of people to trading. And people are breaking out to have pairwise free trade agreements between countries, which are sort of like mercantilism, but we will, we will see, uh, you know, there is, there is a lot to go for. In current uh, situation, because in manufacturing, uh, the supply lines are, are, go across countries. It's very difficult for any country to just be mercantilist. Right. Well, within that, do we risk regional blocks? Do you have, within your reading of history, and particularly your book, Marx's Revenge, do you feel that we're falling back to the 1930s and a blockism that we should fear? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, Brexit gives a notice, just as Donald Trump gives a notice, that the days of globalization are over. People are, it's no longer popular with the voters. Whether they are right or wrong is not the issue. And I think countries are going to scramble around to break up regional alliances, not get into big trade agreements, and try and see if they can do things pairwise. I want to come on and talk more about the Brexit in more detail in just a moment. But just a quick question more broadly. If we are to see governments picking up the baton from central banks and delivering uh, fiscal policy, leakage is going to be a big factor. And you just wonder whether, as you think about how governments are going to spend, they're not going to want that money to leak out. They're not going to want it to go elsewhere. They're going to want to keep it centred on their own economy. Mm. Does protectionism go part and parcel with that? Yeah, you know, I mean, there, there are two things going on there. You, see, you were talking earlier about monetary policy. It's the kind of monetary policy that we have seen so far of central bank buying uh, bonds or some assets. And, you see, that has failed because that money doesn't go beyond the bank's vaults or doesn't go beyond mm. corporate vaults. Nobody is investing. They're all sitting on cash. I.e., money is not transmitting to the economy. So a lot of people are saying, forget about central banks, open market operations, because that's what it is. We need helicopter money. We need helicopter money in the yep. sense either you just uh, finance a deficit with, with monetary, with, with, with printing money, which is supposed to be anathema, but now it's come back into fashion, or you basically shower the, you know, give, give every, every uh, individual in the country 
you know, $1,000 or whatever it is. People are looking for speeding up the transmission of money into the economy. They're no longer worried about inflation because that threat has gone. What inflation? Uh, well, exactly. And all they're talking about uh, infrastructure investment in part of fiscal policy, borrowing while the yield, yields are so low, you know, you, you just finance a big expenditure program. I think uh, uh, Donald Trump, if yep. he were to win, he is one of those people who is very unorthodox about debt. I've written about this, and I think that is what may actually trigger a big infrastructure boom if he were to become uh, well, uh, president. Well, Lord Desai, you always surprise. There are many that would say you are supporting a Trump presidency. Is that true? No, I, I perform the task of a social scientist saying if Trump were to win, what would be the consequences? You know, we have to not, I'm, I'm not in a betting game. I want to know analytically what will happen in case Trump wins. Look, we have lived through Brexit. You know, we cannot neglect the improbable event any longer. The improbable may just happen. So let's prepare for the improbable. The improbable maybe is colored this morning by the lead news of the morning that Secretary Clinton is ill with pneumonia. It's amazing, Lord Desai, and you've got the history to understand this. Ageism plays into this for both Mr. Trump and Secretary Clinton. What is your reading of the short uh, century on uh, health in our leaders? Well, you know, America is much more health conscious now than it used to be. Uh, David Owen, who's a, who's a colleague of mine in the House of Lords, wrote a book about, you know, how sick John Kennedy was. I mean, John Kennedy would never, never make it to the presidential nomination now, nor would Lyndon Johnson. But they were perfectly capable uh, president. So I think the Americans exaggerate the need for a 24-7 fully healthy president. Come on, people come to presidency when they're in their 50s or 60s. And the body, you know, has its own imperatives. As long as they can function as leaders, they don't have to run the marathon. Eight years, though. It's a long time. Four years at a time. Okay. Come on, nevertheless. Guys. Four years. It's two terms. Okay. okay, but let's assume that there's, there's a desire for four more years, and we tag four onto four, and that, in my math, yeah, makes eight. Right. But, but Ronald, I kinda... Reagan, Ronald Reagan had the right idea. He used to take his afternoon off and sleep. Okay. You know, I mean, this is the way well, to like run Winston the presidency. Churchill used to do all kinds of things. I, I guess exactly. kind of... The way to run the presidency is to delegate as much as possible to people you trust and only take strategic decisions. Don't micromanage. And, you know, this, this is the way to run it. Now, you know, poor Hillary Clinton, I feel sorry for her, but I feel more sorry if she was to drop out. Yeah. Let's say, low probability. <clears throat> and if the Democrats found any other candidate... Trump has no chance. Trump has no chance against say, Joe Biden. Because everybody likes Joe Biden. Nobody likes Hillary Clinton. Okay, okay I'm just kind of now so thinking about 18 is, different questions that come off that. Okay. It is in Trump's interest to keep Hillary there. So that's why he's not saying anything at this he's point. He's not saying anything at the moment. I can, how, how big do you think the win would be if it would be, to some, it would be somebody else? Absolutely wipe Trump out. Right, so this would be a, this would be a completely non-viable yeah. Republican Party going in, and would that would that feature into the House as well? Do you think that would have ramifications? That is difficult to say. That is difficult to say mm. because coattails, you know, uh, nobody is relying very much on <coughs> Donald Trump's coattails right now in the Republican Party. 
Oh, at least half the Republican Party is not relying. Well, okay. Lord Desai, I'm glad you endorsed the afternoon nap. It is a hallmark of Bloomberg uh, surveillance. It's very, very important to get the obligatory nap in to get through uh, the week. You make a distinction, Lord Desai, uh, about a businessman or a businesswoman as president. And we think, look back to, I think, Coolidge, certainly Mr. Hoover yeah. uh, as well. I'm not quite sure in the British experience, but what is the distinction of a business? Businessmen as president? I think, you know, uh, businessmen, especially Trump, understands that borrowing for growth is perfectly normal thing. Debt is not a problem. I like, I'm fascinated by Trump because he has said debt is not a problem. And for the last 30, 35 years, we have been told debt is bad, debt GDP ratio should be controlled. And here's what he says, I'll, I'll get into debt, I'll, I'll expand the economy, I'll get out of it. And it's a, you know, it's a different angle on uh, public finances from the angle of a private finance. Normally we think, oh, businessmen know how to run business and, 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 and bureaucrats are irresponsible in borrowing. Here we are. Right. Uh, and right now, you know, as Larry Summers says today in the Financial Times, America needs a lot of infrastructure investment. And Hillary Clinton has not really shown her a hand on that. Right. But Donald Trump has. Well, point, a point of debate here as we get to that debate on September 26th. Douglas Holtz-Egan, a longtime uh, expert on all things uh, political, budget, uh, economic. He is uh, the former director of the Congressional Budget Office. He was the chief economic policy advisor to John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign. He's currently president of the American Action Forum, and he is joining the National Association for Business Economics annual meeting to talk about the gig economy, and that is a big deal these days. We've talked a lot about uh, this uh, with Alan Kruger uh, on the show, Tom, but um, we'll get to that in a moment because I've got to bring up, it's the major story everybody in Washington is talking about. Of course, that's the Redskins tonight playing the Steelers. But the story the rest <laughs> and, of the world is talking about. And you know about, I'm from Pittsburgh. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> the, the story the rest of the world is talking about is Hillary Clinton gets sick, and right. it may change the completely the dynamics of the race here. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Uh, it kind of raises the question of can Donald Trump actually win? It does raise that question, and uh, the political experts have always said something very simple, which is if he can make this race about her, about her emails, about her history, about her as a candidate, he has a chance to win. This is a real opening for that. This is about her basic health and her ability to conduct the office. Uh, I, I think it's the biggest opening scene so far. Interestingly enough, he has been very un-Trump-like this morning. He's appeared on a couple of television programs and said he hopes she feels better soon and we'll see her at the debate. He has not said anything nasty uh, this morning. What he has done is talk about the economy. And uh, in terms of the economy, he's been uh, saying that um, the U.S. Uh, is a victim of regulation, that that's the biggest uh, thing that is holding back uh, the economy, and also trade. He, uh, he says NAFTA is a one-way street to the poorhouse. Uh, you were John McCain's economic advisor. When you look at what he is uh, advocating for the economy, uh, do you think it makes a lot of sense? 
I think objectively it's pretty incoherent. Um, I have a lot of sympathy for his views on regulation. One of the things we do at the American Action Forum is keep track of every federal regulation issued by every agency. And if you look at the, the cumulative regulatory burden by the Obama administration, it's over $800 billion. That's about a $100 billion tax increase every year. That has to have a substantial impact on the economy. On the other hand, I think he's on the wrong side of uh, the facts on, on NAFTA for sure, on the Korean Free Trade Agreement. I think he's wrong about the, the TPP and, and, and international economic relations in general. His proposals are not pro-growth proposals, and we need more rapid growth more than anything else. So would he be a better choice than Hillary Clinton? I, I assume you don't like her economic proposals either. She appears, and the Democratic Party in general, appears to have given up on growth. Uh, you can't find anything that looks like policies to improve long-term trend growth in her platform. So I find that incredibly disappointing uh, and, and something I, I just don't support. Um, she's a, you know, th this is the classic investment decision. Do you want the, uh, the low-risk, low-return Clinton presidency, or do you want the high-risk, potentially high-return Trump presidency? And that's the decision that we're faced with. What would be the high return from a Trump presidency? Well, I think you could imagine a scenario where he really leaves the policymaking to the Congress and says, uh, for example, you, Paul Ryan, in the House, please initiate an agenda that will make this economy grow more rapidly, deliver uh, less poverty, higher standards of living, uh, see what you can get through the Senate, knowing that there won't be 60 votes, and then I'll sign and, um, and, and be a, a, a fair broker and a deal maker, which is his history, of course. Uh, that's that's the, the good scenario. Donald Trump, this morning, uh, in a number of appearances, uh, he was asked about the Fed. And he said that Janet Yellen is political and only doing what Obama wants. The Fed should be ashamed of it. She should be ashamed of herself on rate policy. And the Fed is obviously, he says, not independent. Uh, what do you think? think of that. Uh, uh, is, is there any chance the Fed is doing the administration's bidding? No. I, I think this is an unfortunate uh, route to go down. I mean, since Reagan uh, basically just told Republicans we are not going to discuss the Fed, it's an independent agency, and, and gave Paul Volcker reign to d deal with the inflation of the late 70s, early 80s, I think that's served the U.S. very well. It <clears throat> made the Fed the preeminent monetary authority, and there's no reason to go back to any other way well, but, of thinking about but, but it. But Dr. Holtz, you could come on. In battleground states, is it just as simple as Mr. Trump can win marginal voters if he acts more like Dr. Ron Paul? It is true that the Fed's very unpopular right now. Uh, it is perceived as having, you know, bailed out big Wall Street banks, had, having acted on behalf of them. But that's a problem the Fed, I think, should be dealing with in terms of its public image. I don't think it's a wise thing for a, a president to be, as, as Trump would hope, uh, to exploit. Because he is then going to have to turn around, make appointments, and mm -hmm. have those suffer the same suspicion that they're just acting right. on his behalf. Help us here with this odd thing I know being discussed in Atlanta, policy. If and when <laughs> policy actually becomes part of the campaign, what is your briefing to both candidates on the urgency of our future challenges. Right now, we're sitting pretty, aren't we? Oh, I would not say that. I would say that the near-term outlook for the economy is mixed. We've had a fairly solid household sector. Everything else looks real weak. Uh, that can't persist. So you hope the business community sort of takes the, the cash off the balance sheet and starts investing. But if it doesn't, um, you can't maintain the household spending. So I'm worried about the, the state of the economy. Longer term, the notion that we are going to settle for 2% growth for as far as I can see is just, uh, to me, incredibly sad. Uh, we need to 
deal with the structural problems in the budget, the tax code, the regulatory world, immigration, education, and get trend growth back up. Uh, that, that's an essential thing for greater prosperity for America. I think there is probably 100% agreement among the economists here that uh, whatever you think of Janet Yellen, those things she can't address. They're not within right. monetary policy's purview. You're in touch with all of the Republicans on Capitol Hill. Is there any chance we get a fiscal measure in the next year? Uh, certainly the, the House Republicans have put out a whole series of task force reports on uh, tax reform, anti-poverty measures, health care reform, uh, all of which would uh, have fiscal implications, would put the budget in better order going forward, and I think would have pro-growth features. Uh, the question is, can you turn those task force reports into legislation that a president will sign? And, and that's what's at stake in this election. Well, from your point of view as somebody, I mean, you were the head of the Congressional Budget Office, as somebody who's had to deal with politics, navigate the world of politics in Washington, what one thing do you think could get through both sides and get signed? What could be done fiscally to help the economy get past that 2% limit? I think in the near term, there's uh, uh, the highest prospects would be a deal that included international tax reform, fixing the, the tax treatment of our, our largest uh, multinationals and some infrastructure spending. Uh, Clinton's running heavily on that. Trump has mentioned that. Uh, that appears to be something that both parties would support. And, and there's a wide recognition that the corporate code is just broken and we need to do something about it. So that's the most promising near term uh, piece of legislation I could see. Tell us about the responsiveness, almost the elasticity of our guesses on GDP and our budget. I mean, we haven't had 3.2% real GDP since time began. Where is that plug-in number now? And what's the confidence you have that we know what we're doing when we plug in GDP? Well, I think, you know, you, you raise a really important point, which is, these numbers are very difficult to measure. The measurement issues are hard and, and, to, and to forecast even harder yet. Uh, I've always thought on the budget front that you should really budget for years one, two, and year 50. Uh, you know, you, it's pretty hard to, to have anything like a sensible eight-year forecast. But we know that the 50-year um, budget is, is so badly out of whack, it doesn't matter what the numbers are. We have to get it fixed. And on the economy, I, I think we know that the, the, the upside is just too low right now. Right? We're not going to see uh, a quarter that, that breaks in there, there at 4 4.5%. We just we aren't seeing that kind of behavior, and, and that's what we typically got in a recovery. Let me bring it to your presentation today, the gig economy. Obviously, uh, we're seeing secular changes in the way the economy right. works. Uh, how do you account for that? Uh, one of the questions that came up in the productivity debate yesterday was how you measure the contributions people right. in the gig economy make to GDP. Yeah, I think this session is going to be more um, a, a learning and listening session. I mean, this is a panel discussion on the issues. I think there's something real here. There are a lot of people who would argue that we've always had so-called contingent workers. You know, we have uh, folks who are part-time or we have folks who are independent contractors. That's not new. But we are seeing consumer benefits from the Ubers and the Airbnbs and, and the variety of gig economy players that say this is not just how you arrange the production of services. And... I think we do have to figure out where do these workers fit in the regulatory framework, the Fair Labor Standards Act? Are we going to impose an employer-employee relationship or not? Um, my, my own take on it is they're not a large part of the labor force right now, so we don't yet have to make strong decisions on this, and 
some regulatory forbearance to be wise, but they are growing rapidly. I mean, if Alan Kruger's estimates are to be uh, believed between 2005 and 2015, all of the net employment growth came in contingent workers. That's remarkable. Well, I mean, you have a, 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 on both sides, you have a question. One is, how do we count what they're contributing to the economy? Right. But the other is, how do you help those workers? And maybe this gets to political philosophy, too. Do you make sure that they are paid a living wage and that sort of thing? Because the essence of the gig economy is you'll work for whatever I will pay you because it's your choice. Uh, I think the key here is, how do we fit this into the social safety net going forward. Uh, we, we had a model at the end of World War II where the employer was the well of all the social benefits. They provided the pensions and the health care and, and all the things the, the, the employees wanted. Uh, I don't think that's a, a, a viable model for the 21st century, but we haven't come up with an alternative. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the crucial policy question. And getting the same kinds of tests in the IRS and the Labor Department and sort of cleaning out the regulatory morass right. surrounding this would be a good idea. Doc, thank you so much. Dr. Holtzik and folks uh, with us from the National Association for Business Economic Meetings in Atlanta. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. We are with uh, William White. He is the chairman of the Economic and Development Review Committee of the OECD, but basically he's uh, the, the man for economics at the, the of the 30 biggest economies in the United States, and he received the Adam Smith Award from the NABE yesterday and gave an address that, well, let me put it this way. I walked into the building, and everybody was wearing hard hats. <laughs> the survey that we just talked about of NABE members said that the uh, peak of the economic cycle wouldn't come in until 2018. I think it's safe to say that Mr. White disagrees. He is rather pessimistic about the global outlook, so we've invited him on to uh, to depress our list to, to explain to our listeners exactly what he sees. Uh, you do see uh, problems in the global economy out there. Oh, I, I, absolutely. Um, I, I think there's all sorts of things that one should be concerned about. Um, not least, I think, is that uh, there's been a cumulative buildup of uh, debt. Um, started, I think, with the advanced market economies, but now it's spread to the emerging market economies. Uh, McKinsey uh, did a, um, a survey a little while ago, the Global Institute, that basically indicated that global debt levels, uh, that's to say households plus corporates plus sovereigns, are up 20 percentage points of GDP since 2009. So if one thinks about the crisis as a period of deleveraging, uh, after a period of excessive leveraging. The deleveraging hasn't even started. Now, you made a reference uh, a moment ago to the, the timing of when is, was, when is all of this going to stop. The honest truth is that nobody has got the slightest idea of how long these processes can continue. But what you do know, and this is a famous line of Herb Stein, do you remember? Where Herb right. Stein says, Stein's if something, law. something's unsustainable, it will stop. And Rudy Dornbusch apparently responded, it'll go on a lot longer than you imagine. <laughs> and that's the way it is. So I, I think uh, that essentially we have got um, uh, a problem here going forward. 
Uh, debt is the most important thing, but it's not the, the only thing. Uh, there are all sorts of other imbalances that are out there, uh, not least of which in the financial markets. Uh, I guess I believe that virtually all financial assets are very, very sort of aggressively priced. Uh, that includes the risk spreads, it includes the stock market. Negative interest rates are clearly totally unsustainable uh, as an ongoing, as an ongoing uh, reality. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think there's some problems, and I could talk about specific yeah. problems in specific regions as well. But when, when will the hammer fall? Nobody, Nobody could knows. possibly yeah. know. Why is William R. White with us, folks? Maybe we can go back three years to September 2013. I just put out on Twitter one of the two papers Dr. White wrote for the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. It is absolutely must read. It is the required paper I give when I lecture students is monetary policy a science. Can't say enough about it. And, and Bill, what you nail in footnote 110, page 31 <laughs> Tom would of read your it, yeah. September 13, I've read every word of this paper, folks. Footnote 110, you were so out front on negative rates. What have you learned on negative rates since you wrote footnote 110 on Denmark three years ago? Oh, yes. I, I, it's hard for me to remember footnote 110. <laughs> I but, was mentioning um, it to my yeah, children I, I, this weekend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can see you have lively uh, breakfast conversations in your house, Tom. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess right at the beginning, I mean, the Danes expressed some concern about uh, negative interest rates, not, not least of which, uh, and I think this has materialized more recently, was that um, if... if the negative interest rates start squeezing the, 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 the profits uh, of the banks. And uh, the concern was that um, you couldn't lower the deposit rate any lower. So if you wanted to get your profits back again, okay, given that you were being paid a negative interest rate on your reserves at the central bank, maybe the only alternative was to raise the lending rate to get the profits back again. But that's the very opposite of the purpose for which the policy was designed. And uh, I think I said at the time in an interview with somebody, it's a bit like quantum mechanics, you know, that uh, you know, think of Newtonian physics where body's in motion and everything's just fine as long as the bodies aren't moving too fast or the bodies aren't too small, in which case you're into general relativity or quantum mechanics. It's a different world. And maybe, maybe that's what's happening with negative rates. And we should think about this possibility that there might, there might be a kind of phase change here uh, that gives you a result that's not the result that was intended. So I saw that ages and ages ago, but it's only more recently since bigger central banks have done it that there's been a more widespread discussion of whether uh, these things are helpful or whether they're not helpful. Well, the, the folks on the Fed seem to agree with you at this point after studying it. They don't seem enthusiastic, uh, mm -hmm. as enthusiastic as other central banks, but that still leaves them short of tools, doesn't it? If you're correct, if we do see... A downturn, and Larry Summers went on record last week saying it's going to happen reasonably soon, without putting a time on it. Uh, and the, the Fed funds rate is at 50 or 75 basis points. Uh, everybody looked at this Dave Reichschneider paper from the Board of Governors saying, "Well, the Fed, you know, at three percent, uh, they can they, they would have enough room to cut. But if they don't get to three percent, what do they do?" Well, I I, I guess. Um I suspect what they'll do is they'll double down on the stuff that they're already already doing so that we'll get into more quantitative easing, 
qualitative easing, all of the different things that, that people have spoken about before. Um, my worry about it is that it won't work. And secondly, that it will have still more of the unintended consequences of the policies that we've followed to date. And I think we, th those policies have had a lot of undesired consequences. The imbalances that I was speaking about just a few minutes ago. So there's always room for the central bank to buy more stuff. I mean, in the, in the limit, uh, you can go out and buy all the cars that GM is <clears throat> right. producing. You can buy all <clears throat> the stock. You can buy the ETFs. You can buy whatever. But the question is, will it do more good than harm? And I'm suggesting that we should be thinking much more seriously right. about those questions. But, Dr. White, this is the second time in the conversation you've brought up in the limit, the idea of the limitations of Newtonian calculus. Can you bring Newtonian calculus over to people's behavior when they have to pay a bank to give, to give them their money? No, absolutely not. I mean, one of the things that does concern me when you, we start talking about uh, will monetary policy work to stimulate aggregate demand, which is a, a fundamental assumption underlying the policies of the central banks, is that maybe it doesn't work the way that people think it works. Now, I'll give you two, two, two examples. One of them is, um, and this is in my earlier paper, but people are now talking about it more, is maybe uh, low interest rates... Uh, could have a perverse effect through older people in particular who are dependent upon who are dependent upon um, a certain amount of savings, let's say to buy an annuity or the equivalent, you know, to, to finance a reasonable retirement. If the rate of interest at which they can roll up their savings goes down, uh, then they have really only two choices. One of them is they can work more and longer, which I think is a, yeah. a good choice but the, uh, for everybody. But the second thing, of course, is they save more, not less. Because they need to save more to get right. the requisite target at the end of their, their, their working life. And you can tell very similar stories on the corporate side, too. This is a, a, a problem for us is we are running out of time, but we've got to get you back to talk about this very soon. I know you've got to go back to Switzerland. Maybe Tom and I will come over there to, uh, to, to, to uh, talk to you. But this has been terrific, Bill White. <clears throat> William White from the OECD, thanks for joining us on Surveillance. On Friday, Goldman Sachs equity strategist Dave Costin put out a note saying that sentiment in the equity markets was higher than it had been in years, and that suggested that stock markets were going to continue to go down. Well, I had the opportunity to sit down with his counterpart on the commodities side, Jeff Curry, head of uh, commodities research for Goldman Sachs here at the National Association for Business Economics meeting. And I asked him, first of all, what are commodities markets telling him? You look at most of these markets, they're sitting pretty close to their equilibrium values. You take oil, um, we, we would say long-term oil prices are in that 50 to 55 range, back end of the forward curves peg there. And so it's kind of a boring outlook in commodities right now. Our base case is 45 to 50 right now. Um, with the expectations that this market in a very slow rebalancing process gets tight enough at the end of next year for the need to turn the U.S. shale machine back on, and that gets you into that 55 to 60. But over the next 9 to 12 months, 
it's a relatively benign outlook of 45 to 50. Oil, big gain this week on the big inventory drop, but everybody seems to think that's just temporary. Well, obviously there was the hurricanes that are the tropical storms down in the Gulf Coast that led to the disruption in supplies into the Gulf Coast. Um, when we look at the market more broadly, it is in a modest deficit. Um, we do see significant increases in low-cost supplies from the likes of Russia and Saudi Arabia, but that's being offset by declines in places like China, Venezuela. And the net of it is this market's in a slight deficit. Yeah, last week probably exaggerated it, um, but the overall market is in a modest deficit. Some recent news uh, in your sectors, uh, OPEC members walking around talking about trying to impose sort of a price ceiling as opposed to a production freeze. Is there is that a distinction? Well, that a difference? Is there a difference? Can OPEC do anything that would really affect the price of oil right now? Uh, we like to say we have more confidence in the production thaw than the production freeze. Um, in terms of thinking about the, the idea of, of the freeze or a ceiling, um, it's really uncertain what it would mean to supply. In fact, we find in terms of some of the numbers they're batting around right now, we would lead us to raising our supply forecast, which is why we like to focus on the thaw. And when we think about the thaw, we're seeing big, low-cost producers that have had supply off the market for quite some time beginning to re-enter this market, whether if it's Libya, Iraq, up in Kurdistan, um, as well as Nigeria. Um, you know, the one that's added the most right now so far is Iraq, um, but there's potential for large large increases out of both Libya and Nigeria going forward. That's why we would argue um, the risks are likely skewed to the downside further out from these low-cost players. Everybody's going to want to know what you're uh, thinking about gold these days. I, should, I could frame questions just by throwing out the word gold. <laughs> you told us 1300 uh, sort of a base case price back in July. Since then, we've been in a range between uh, thirteen and 13100 uh, We stay? Well, I, again, uh, you know, Tactically, we really don't like gold for you know, the reasons you just cited. But strategically, we do like gold in the sense of, you know, I like to say and, uh, being long gold is the same thing as being short politicians. And in this type of environment, there is political risk out there. Um, so in terms of thinking about owning gold in a portfolio as a diversifying asset against um, the other financial instruments, we would argue there is a case to be made there. But, you know, as you point out, tactically, all else equal, it's a relatively been benign type of market environment. What have you heard from the politicians, the presidential candidates that you think would affect commodities markets? Oh, the, 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 the elephant in the room that most people are focused on is the potential for fiscal policy. Um, and I, I don't think there's a lot of a differentiation between the two candidates, but that would be the, the, really the game changer for commodities in terms of thinking about big fiscal policy spend, because obviously it would be tied to infrastructure development and be quite bullish for the industrial metals complex. Um, so that's really where the focal point is from a political perspective, is what are the odds of seeing fiscal policy. Now, in terms of thinking about what our economists say and, and just the, the reading the tea leaves out there, it's not something that's going to be any time in the immediate future, something very further off into the distance. But from the perspective of commodities, that's really what people are focused on. Jeff Curry, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jeff, of course, the uh, head of commodities research for Goldman Sachs, Tom, and uh, I thought it was interesting, the, the short position for gold that he talked about uh, and uh, the idea that uh, we could see a game changer if either candidate made a serious infrastructure proposal. Yeah, I, I assume that fiscal stimulus in many different ways would change things around. But what I find fascinating, Mike, is the new humility of people that were 
wrong at 100, and even those that were quiet at 100, just mystified by the valuation there. And, of course, to remind everyone, Mr. Curry uh, migrated well south of 40 and looked good at $29 a barrel. And even now, there's some real question about this range we're in. I don't have a strong opinion either way, but nevertheless, we are range-bound. Yeah, he's not looking for a big breakout either. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.